You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, and thank you for joining the American Revolution. This week, episode 285, Hobkirk Hill. We last left General Nathaniel Greene and the Southern Army at the Battle of Guilford Courthouse in North Carolina in March 1781. After the battle, Greene had to decide what to do next. Although he technically lost the battle by withdrawing from the field, he had inflicted a grievous wound on General Cornwallis's British army by taking so many British casualties. General Cornwallis retreated eastward with his army to Wilmington, North Carolina. At first, Green shadowed Cornwallis, but as the British got closer to the coast, Green knew he was not going to pick a fight where the army had a backup from the British Navy. He would only fight the British on ground that he chose. The North Carolina militia that was with Green would see its enlistments end at the end of March. The men needed to get home and begin their planting season, and were not inclined to stick it out with Green. With that, Green's army shrank back to mostly its core of Continentals. Green decided to leave North Carolina again, this time moving southward to South Carolina. If he could get Cornwallis to follow him, he could draw the British out of North Carolina and back further south. That would be a strategic victory for the Continentals. If Cornwallis did not follow Green, then Green could pick off the British and Loyalist outposts in the backcountry of South Carolina and Georgia. In many ways, Green's decision to move south violated good military practice. He knew that forces were gathering in Virginia, and that by moving away from those armies, he was once again dividing Continental forces in the face of a larger enemy that was concentrating its army for an obvious attack. Green also risked that Cornwallis would chase after him and attack him in his rear while he was focused on other targets. Green's second-in-command, General Baron von Steuben, said as much in letters to Green. Von Steuben hoped that Green would provide him with some assistance in Virginia against the growing army under General William Phillips. Instead, Green was running in the other direction. When von Steuben asked Green in letters about why he headed away from the enemy, Green responded in a letter, quote, Don't be surprised if my movements don't correspond with your ideas of military propriety. War is an intricate business and people are often saved by ways and means they least look for or expect. Green went on to explain in his letter that because his march southward made no military sense, that it would confuse General Cornwallis. Perhaps it would make the enemy think that he had some secret reason for doing what he was doing. But of course, he really didn't have any secret reasons. He was apparently just trying to confuse the enemy by violating some basic precepts of good military strategy. In South Carolina, the British still had thousands of soldiers, and most of them were stationed around Charleston. They also maintained several outposts 
to assert control over the entire state. One of the largest was at Camden, where the British defeated the Continentals a year earlier. If Green could take Camden now and succeed where General Gates had failed, that would be seen as a major victory. In order to isolate and weaken Camden, Green first tried to cut off the supply lines between Camden and Charleston. He gave that mission to his cavalry commander, Colonel Lighthorse Harry Lee. He ordered Lee to link up with Colonel Francis Marion's local militia. The British had built a small fort along the Santee River between Camden and Charleston to facilitate supply lines. Fort Watson got its name from the British officer who ordered its construction, Lieutenant Colonel John Tadwell Watson. British Lieutenant James McKay commanded a garrison of 114 regulars and loyalists. Given the number of Patriot raids in the region, the fort was designed to withstand a pretty sizable attack. The defenders had set the fort on high ground with a wall surrounded by three rows of abatis. They had cut down all the trees within rifle range in order to deny cover to any would-be attackers. General Thomas Sumter attacked the fort in February, but without success. However, the attack caused Colonel Watson to pursue Sumter, which is why Lieutenant McKay commanded the fort with a reduced garrison. Lee and Marion targeted the fort. Taking it would not only isolate Camden from Charleston, the attackers also wanted the food and ammunition that was stored at the fort. Lee had about 300 men under his command, and Marion had another 80 or so. The combined forces approached the fort on April 15, 1781, and demanded its surrender. Although the British garrison was outnumbered nearly 4 to 1, Lieutenant McKay was confident of the fort's defenses and refused to surrender. Given the defenses, the attackers hoped to avoid a frontal attack, and they had no artillery to assault the fort. So instead, they settled in for a siege. At the outset, things did not look good for the attackers. They tried to cut off the fort's access to water, but the garrison had a well within the fort's walls. Marion's militia also faced an outbreak of smallpox. Fortunately, the Continentals under Lee were inoculated. If the siege went on too long, a relief force from Charleston might be able to chase off the Americans. After about a week, the Americans decided on a new plan. The fort was built on a mound of about 22 feet, and on top of that, there was a seven-foot wall. The attackers needed a way to get over that wall. One of the American officers, a Major Hezekiah Mam, suggested they build a tower and use riflemen to fire into the fort over the wall. Over the next five days, the soldiers cut down trees and put together the parts for a tower which became known as the Mam Tower. They did this in the forest out of sight of the garrison. The men then dragged their parts and assembled the fort overnight on April 22nd. The tower stood over 40 feet tall and allowed riflemen to fire through loopholes cut into its wooden defenses that were built into the tower. The riflemen had a clear shot over the wall at anyone moving around inside the fort. The next morning, several riflemen climbed into the tower, supported by a larger detachment of soldiers behind man-made defenses at its base. The British fired on the tower, killing two Americans. Inside the fort, several men were hit, including Lieutenant McKay, who was wounded. The riflemen in the tower forced everyone in the fort to take cover, meaning that they could not provide much defensive fire. 
the attackers used this opportunity to disassemble the abatis and prepare for an all-out attack on the fort walls. Lieutenant McKay, seeing the preparations for a final assault on his fort, surrendered the fort and its garrison. The Americans captured the fort supplies and destroyed the fort itself. Under the terms of the surrender, the Americans allowed the surrendering officers to keep their swords and baggage and return to Charleston under parole. The enlisted regulars, about two-thirds of those captured, were also permitted to return to Charleston and await exchange. The 36 loyalists in the fort, however, were taken as prisoners. All of the supplies in the fort went to Lee's Continentals, except for the ammunition, which Marion's men desperately needed to continue the fight. After removing the supplies from the fort, Marion ordered it burned so that the British could not come back and occupy it again after they left. Even before the siege of Fort Watson had ended, General Greene had moved his main army closer to Camden in hopes of taking that outpost. Rather than a direct attack, Greene set up a defensive position just north of Camden at a place known as Hobkirk Hill. Camden, at the time, was only a small village of 21 houses. The British had built defenses all around the town that would make any direct attack pretty costly. There were eight earthen redoubts surrounded by ditches and abatis. Green had about 1,500 Continentals, which he deployed on April 20th. The British were already aware of his presence, and Continental skirmishers engaged with British pickets the day before to test their defenses. Green might have had more soldiers, but on the eve of battle, 250 of his North Carolina militia insisted that their enlistments were up and that they be discharged. Green personally pleaded with them to stay, noting that they were about to go into battle, but they refused and left the rest of the army as they marched home. A Hopkirk Hill offered the Americans the high ground. The position gave them a good view of the approaching enemy, with a forest on one side and a swamp on the other, thus preventing surprise attacks on their flanks. On the night of April 24th, an American deserter entered the British lines at Camden. He told the commander, Lieutenant Colonel Francis Ralden, that Green was still awaiting reinforcements and that he did not yet have his artillery. If the British launched a surprise attack, they could be victorious. Lord Ralden was only 26 years old at the time, but he was an experienced officer. He had been fighting in the Revolution since he had led a regiment at Bunker Hill six years earlier. Cornwallis had left Rawdon in full command of the South Carolina frontier, which included pretty much everything outside of the greater Charleston area. Rawdon figured that an attack would be his best opportunity and prepared to march out to the enemy the following morning. If Green didn't have his artillery yet and could link up with Lee and Marion after a few days, then attacking now really was Rawdon's best option. At around 9 o'clock on the morning of April 25th, Rawdon marched out of Camden with 900 soldiers. These included several regiments of regulars, several provincial regiments that had considerable battlefield experience, and two field cannon. He did not know that Green's force was considerably larger than his and did actually already have its artillery in place. Green had sent some of his artillery away after hearing a rumor that reinforcements were on their way to Camden to support Rawdon but those rumors proved false. The artillery returned to Hobgart Hill and was in place by the morning of the battle. At around 11 o'clock, the British column ran into the American pickets. 
Delaware Continentals under the command of Captain Robert Kirkwood. The skirmishing that took place gave the Americans time to form up their lines on the hill. Two Maryland regiments, under the command of Colonel Otho Holland Williams, made up the American left flank. Two Virginia regiments, under General Isaac Yugi, made up the right flank. The Americans came through the woods, formed ranks, and began a slow advance toward the Americans. Seeing that the American lines were longer than the British lines, Green ordered his own lines to advance as well, hoping to envelop both flanks of the British line. Seeing that problem, Ralden brought up his reserves to extend his lines. Even so, Ralden had only brought about 900 soldiers against nearly 1,500 under Green. As the two lines advanced, things began to break down. On the left flank, Captain William Beatty was shot dead, and with his loss, the Maryland line began to collapse. The regiment's colonel, John Gunvey, ordered his men to pull back and reform. But his second-in-command did not get the orders and continued to advance with only part of the regiment. The other Maryland regiment's commander, Colonel Benjamin Ford, also fell, leading to even more confusion. On the right flank, the 1st Virginia Regiment took heavy fire and also pulled back, leaving the 2nd Virginia to take the full brunt of the British advance. Green had sent his cavalry under William Washington on a long ride to get around the British rear and attack them from behind. But before Washington could get to the battlefield, it was over. With his lines descending into chaos, Green ordered a retreat and abandoned Hobgirk Hill. Despite the battlefield confusion, the lines managed to withdraw without collapsing into a panicked run. Green was even able to withdraw his cannons, although he personally had to get off his horse and help push the cannons off the field. The Americans fell back about six miles, and the British did not pursue. Ralden was already outnumbered, and he didn't want to get too far from his base at Camden, especially if the Americans might soon receive reinforcements. So, after the battle, Ralden pulled back to Camden. The fight had been a pretty brutal one. The British lost over 200 killed and wounded, and another 50 captured. The Americans took 270 casualties, about half of those being captured. Among the prisoners captured by the Americans were perhaps two dozen who were believed to be American deserters who had joined the Loyalist ranks. Green held court-martials and hanged at least five of them. Following the battle, Green was depressed. He outnumbered the enemy, even without having to rely on militia, yet he still lost the battle. He blamed his field officers for the loss, particularly Colonel Gunby. Green even called a court of inquiry into Gunby's actions during the battle. Green also expressed a concern to other officers that they might be pushed back into the mountains and have to cede South Carolina to the British, even without Cornwallis to defend the state. A few days later, though, Green's mood brightened. Lord Ralden, following the bloody battle, and after hearing about the fall of Fort Watson, decided that his outpost at Camden was too much of a risk. On May 10th, the British evacuated Camden and moved back to Charleston. Even before the British withdrew from Camden, Green continued his efforts to take out smaller British outposts wherever possible. Following the fall of Fort Watson, Green ordered Lee and Marion to take out Fort Mott, a supply depot along the Congaree River. Although Lee and Marion had fought well together at Fort Watson, there were divisions between Marion's militia and the Continentals. One flashpoint at this point was over horses. 
Marion had been confiscating horses from locals that he believed to be loyalists. It was how he kept his militia mounted and on the move. Green, who was trying to improve public opinion toward the Patriots, told Marion to stop doing this. Marion, who was already frustrated by the fact that his men were getting no food or supplies from anyone, threatened to resign his command if Green was going to prevent him from taking what he needed from loyalists. Green had to backpedal and make sure Marion continued to provide the necessary local support for actions against British outposts. A Fort Mott was set on a plantation. Its owner was a widow named Rebecca Bruton Mott. Her husband, Jabo Mott, had fought for the Patriots at Fort Moultrie in 1776, but had died of an illness in 1780. The British took over the plantation in early 1781, allowing Rebecca and her family to reside in an old farmhouse on the property. The Mott Plantation proved to be a valuable position, near McCord's Ferry and along a route used to ship supplies from Charleston to Camden. The British garrisoned the plantation with 80 regulars, 59 Hessians, and 45 Loyalist militia, along with a single field cannon. Command fell to British Lieutenant Donald McPherson. The garrison occupied the plantation's mansion, which sat at the top of a hill. They built defenses, including abatis, a ditch, several palisades, and a wooden parapet, along with two blockhouses to cover its flanks. It was used primarily as a supply depot for goods shipped to the British garrison at Camden. Before the British evacuated Camden, Green viewed the capture of Fort Mott as yet another way to isolate the Camden outpost. Lee's legion, along with Marion's militia, arrived at Fort Mott on May 7. Fearing that a frontal assault against these defenses would prove too costly, Lee once again opted for a siege. He had a single field cannon, which he positioned to fire at the mansion. He then used his soldiers, supplemented by local slaves, to dig a zigzag trench toward the enemy lines. By May 10th, the trenches were complete. Lee called on Lieutenant McPherson to surrender the fort. Although heavily outnumbered, McPherson still hoped for a relief force from Camden would come to his rescue. Although Lord Ralden had evacuated Camden that night, his army would march past Fort Mott on its way to Charleston and could relieve the garrison. On the night of May 11th, both the attackers and the defenders saw British campfires in the distance and anticipated the relief force would arrive within two days. Lee decided the only way to win would be to set the mansion on fire and burn the fort. He obtained Mrs. Mott's consent to burn the home. According to some accounts, he used flaming arrows. Other evidence suggests the men fired ramrods with combustibles attached onto the wooden roof. British soldiers scrambled onto the roof to douse the fires, but Lee fired grape shot from his cannon to keep them away. With the house now on fire, McPherson surrendered the fort. Both sides then struggled to put out the fire and save the mansion. The British garrison was taken prisoner, and the Americans managed to capture a cannon, also 140 muskets and a great many supplies being held at the depot. Following the fort's surrender, another fight erupted. General Green arrived at Fort Mott just after the British surrender and just in time to enjoy a dinner with the officers on both sides in the dining room of the Widow Mott's farmhouse. It was the first time Green and Marion had met in person. Also at the table was 
British Lieutenant McPherson, and several other captured officers who were now American prisoners. As the officers enjoyed dinner together, one of Lee's officers, allegedly on Lee's orders, hanged three of the captured Loyalists. These men were identified by the Americans as having burned Patriot houses in earlier actions. Upon hearing the news, Marion dashed out of the house to find two of the Loyalists already dead and a third dangling from a noose, slowly suffocating. He cut down the man and told the Continentals that he would personally kill any man who tried to hang any more of his prisoners. Tensions between the militia and the Continentals was nothing new. While Green struggled to smooth over the differences, he had other concerns. With Ralden's evacuation of Camden and the fall of key outposts, the Patriots were reasserting control of South Carolina. Green wrote to Governor John Rutledge, by this time in Philadelphia, to urge him to return to South Carolina and restore civil authority. With British forces bottled up around Charleston, Green wanted to establish that the rest of South Carolina was once again under Patriot control. Next week, we continue the battle for South Carolina as the fights continue over the last of the British outposts along the frontier. This episode is supported by the food delivery service, Factor. It's spring now, and we all want to spend more time outdoors enjoying life, not the kitchen. Factor ensures you have fresh, never-frozen, chef-crafted, dietitian approved meals that you can prepare in just two minutes. Each week, you get a menu of 35 meal options, as well as 60 add-ons, including breakfasts, on-the-go lunches, snacks, and beverages. You can customize your orders to get as much or as little as you want each week, and can pause or make changes to your orders at any time. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. It's the perfect solution if you're looking for fast, upscale options done easily. Now, they even have a special deal for fans of the American Revolution podcast. Head to factormeals.com ARP50 and use that code ARP50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box. That's code ARP50 at factormeals.com ARP50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. Hey, thanks for joining the American Revolution Podcast After Show. Thanks to my Patreon supporters in the Alexander Hamilton Club, George Davis, Mike Hager, and Michael Mulhern, and to Robert Morris Circle supporters, Greg Pusak, and 10 Crucial Days. Go to 10crucialdays.com for lots of great information on the period between Washington's Crossing and the Battle of Princeton. I really appreciate everyone who has taken the time to support this podcast financially, either by subscribing on Patreon or through one-time contributions via PayPal or Venmo. As many of you know, I've left my day job to focus on this podcast, and I very much rely on your generous support. I think I've ranted before about the fact that my host has not really come through for me on the advertising revenue. And that's one reason that I am actually in the process of switching to a new host. In the meantime, your contributions are what can keep me going. I also wanted to mention that we had a really good turnout for the American Revolution Roundtable on Zoom earlier this month. 
That was an organizational meeting where we decided that we're going to meet monthly on the second Wednesday of each month at 7 p.m. Eastern Time. Again, this is going to be on Zoom, so wherever you are, you're more than welcome to attend. This is a great opportunity to chat with me, as well as with other folks who enjoy this podcast. We're going to discuss different topics from the American Revolution. You don't need to be an expert. You don't even need to talk if you don't want to. You can just come and listen. Our next meeting is going to discuss Benedict Arnold and whether he is a hero or a villain. I very much hope you can make it. For details about the roundtable or other updates on this podcast, the best way to get them is to join my mailing list. And you can join that by going to the link on my website at www.amrevpodcast.com. I promise that I don't send more than one or two emails each month, and I don't share your information with anyone else. I also want to remind you that the American Revolution Podcast is now a member of two different networks. We've joined the Into History Network, and if you sign up for that and pay a premium, you get access to all of the back episodes, commercial-free, as well as special content, and of course access to a whole bunch of other podcasts, not just mine. So if you want to check out Into History Podcasts, I have a link to it on my website. You can also go directly to intohistory.com. I am also a member now of the Airwave Media Network, and they are actually going to start hosting my podcast shortly after my recording of this episode. You don't have to do anything. Your feeds should all remain the same. You should still be able to get this podcast, and nothing should really change on it. If you have any problems, please let me know. Of course, if you're listening to this, you're probably not having problems because you're getting to it. My hope is that by joining this network, I can increase the show's exposure, and get even more people to start listening to the American Revolution podcast. As I said, though, if you listen to the podcast, you shouldn't really have to do anything to keep on listening the way you've always done. It should appear on all the places that the podcast appears now. This week, we discussed the fall of a few British forts in South Carolina, but the big event was the British victory at Hobkirk Hill. Hobkirk Hill is sometimes called the Second Battle of Camden, although it wasn't fought in Camden, but then again, neither was the actual Battle of Camden. It was a British victory because the Americans had to withdraw from the field. Of course, Lord Ralden bragged about his victory in his reports to Cornwallis and to other officials in London. Ralden's reports about the British victory at Hobkirk Hill greatly reassured British leaders that the southern colonies were safe and secure. It also gave General Cornwallis the confidence to leave North Carolina and move into Virginia, thinking Rawdon had the South secure. Of course, the battle did result in Rawdon's decision to evacuate Camden and pull back to Charleston. Without Cornwallis's army, the South Carolina outposts were simply too exposed to Greene's Continentals. Rawdon made that decision a few weeks after the battle, and so his decision did not reach officials in London or Cornwallis until much later, and by that time, Green had pretty much overrun all of the state. So, although Green lost Hobkirk Hill, his tactical defeat once again turned into a strategic victory. The withdrawal from Camden essentially ceded all of South Carolina to the Americans, except for that area around Charleston. And with Cornwallis headed to Virginia... British control of the region collapsed. My book recommendation this week is William Washington, 
American Light Dragoon, a Continental Cavalry Leader in the War of Independence, by Daniel Murphy. Colonel Washington is, of course, overshadowed not only by his much more famous cousin, General Washington, but also by Light Horse Harry Lee. Lee did his own PR by writing his memoirs after the war, so Lee got to provide his take on his war service, and that has become a big source for historians. But William Washington was absolutely critical as the other cavalry commander in the South. Washington was involved in most of the key Southern battles at the time, and he really is an interesting character. The book that covers Washington was published in 2014. It's well-written and very readable, and it gives you a good overview of the entire Southern campaign of 1780-81 from the view of Colonel Washington. So look for the book, William Washington, American Light Dragoon, a Continental Cavalry Leader in the War of Independence by Daniel Murphy. My online recommendation is an older book about another officer that I mentioned this week. It is Colonel John Gunby of the American Line by A.A. Gunby. Colonel Gunby was the officer that Green blamed for losing Hobkirk Hill. This book, first published in 1902, seeks to defend and restore Colonel Gunby's reputation. The author is presumably one of his descendants. He was an attorney and a judge in Louisiana. The book itself is pretty short, but it does give a really good account of the Battle of Hobkirk Hill and also of the Court of Inquiry against Colonel Gunby that followed it. The book is a free download on archive.org. And as always, you can find links to the book on my blog and website. My question this week asks, how did Britain react to the American colonies declaring independence? I thought this would be a fun one to answer because I've set up my answer using the traditional five stages of grief, denial, anger, bargaining, depression, and acceptance. The word started out, the British were in a state of denial. They were convinced that a simple show of force would result in the rebellious colonists simply backing down and meekly accepting British control. They sent a few regiments to Boston with the expectation that the colonists would settle down and submit to British power once the British redcoats were in front of them. The next stage is anger. The colonists fought back, and they kicked the army out of Boston and declared independence. The king and parliament were outraged by this. They sent a massive military force of over 50,000 to wage an all-out war and defeat this movement. The next stage, bargaining. After the Americans won a few more victories and France entered the war, Britain sent a peace commission, offering pretty much any concession short of independence. The Americans, of course, rejected this offer. We moved to the next stage, depression. Many more years of war led to much frustration in Parliament and many delegates criticizing their own government for allowing this mess to grow. The Prime Minister and many others just wanted to resign. It was really only King George who did not allow this to happen. And finally, Stage 5, Acceptance. As the fighting continued year after year after year without success, the government finally accepted that it was not going to defeat its former colonies. The peace treaty in 1783 established that the British accepted American independence as a condition of ending the war. If you have a question that you would like me to answer, please reach out to me, either via email 
or on Twitter, Facebook, Quora, or Reddit. Well, that's all for this week. I hope you will join me again next week for another American Revolution podcast. The French Revolution set Europe ablaze. It was an age of enlightenment and progress, but also of tyranny and oppression. It was an age of glory and an age of tragedy. One man stood above it all. This was the Age of Napoleon. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast. Join me as I examine the life and times of one of the most fascinating and enigmatic characters in modern history. Look for the Age of Napoleon wherever you find your podcasts.